Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Man, it feels good to say that again. So this Sunday, the fourth Sunday in Lent, is traditionally known as Laetare Sunday, and that's taken from Isaiah 66. And Laetare means rejoice, and it's also known as Rose Sunday. And it's the time when the church expresses hope and joy right smack in the middle of Lenten fasts and penitence. It's when we look out past the coming weeks of Christ's passion and just glimpse the joyous Easter morning. Here, this fourth Sunday of Lent, I find there's a lot to be hopeful about. As I mentioned earlier to some of you, this is exactly 52 Sundays since we were forced to shut down. And here we are gathered again. We're safely masked and socially distanced, but we are gathered and ready to add even more gatherings in the coming weeks. The first signs of spring are appearing in the trees and the bushes surrounding the church. Petroselli Walkway, connecting our main building and the parish hall, is coming along very nicely. We no longer have an unsightly hole in the middle of the campus. There's light at the end of the coronavirus tunnel with the promise of mass immunization, possibly by May. And even daylight savings time is here, and, and while this morning may be a little tougher than usual, it promises longer evening sunlight and points toward summer activities. And this year, more than most, I find a return to summer sounds incredibly inviting. There is so much, so much to be hopeful about. And this morning's scriptures, scripture readings all point to that hope. Specifically, they ask us to trust in God's redeeming power, a power that saves us. And they challenge us about how much we believe in that. The reading from the book of Numbers addresses the idea of being saved most directly. The wandering Israelites are complaining, again, about the quality of their food and drink this time, and they get poisonous snakes in return. This causes a change in heart, and they repent and ask for forgiveness. And the raising of the bronze snake prefigures Jesus' own raising on the cross that we hear in today's gospel. The psalm reading affirms a core truth about all Scripture. From the beginning, God is shown as the one who is eager to save, eager to redeem, to meet us in our need. We as humans are in desperate need of God. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them and saved them from the grave. And Ephesians doubles down on this promise of being saved. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are already participating in a life that is saved. It's done. The work is accomplished. We participate in the resurrection now and are invited to witness to the gift of grace that we've received. Now, it being Ephesians, it's not all glory, laud, and honor. First, we have to recognize that the powers of evil are real. We are all subject to the dark powers of sin, Satan, and self. In fact, we are forced to recognize that nobody is safe from evil's power. It's fitting that we reflect upon evil's power during Lent. And while it's rare to hear a hell-raising sermon about Satan in the Episcopal Church, it does us good to ponder the ways that any substance, real or imagined, that competes with God, actually opposes God. 
Things like addiction or money or power or sense of self. See, we alone can't defeat the powers of evil. We're too weak. Even Christ in his life couldn't defeat the powers. It was Christ's resurrecting victory over sin and death that manifests and verifies our hope of redemption. The Israelites looked at the lifted bronze snake and were given life. We look to the cross and are given eternal life. Now there's power in admitting our universal weakness to evil. Like the 12-step programs that are again meeting in our buildings, our acknowledgement of powerlessness unites us and strengthens us. We share our stories, support each other in weakness, and grow. We are united and saved by God's grace. We are made alive together in Christ. We are called to be the fullest expression of ourselves. And Ephesians 2, verse 10, proclaims our redemption. For we are what He has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. You see, this already but not yet quality of the resurrection is why we return to Lent every year, unable to avoid Christ's death to the powers of evil, but able to gain a foretaste of Christ's decisive victory Easter morning. And finally, the Gospel reading from John. The familiarity of John 3.16, which is at the heart of the reading, can cause us to lose the significance of its meaning. In a way, it's a restatement of God's mission. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Throughout scripture, we're exposed again and again to God's extravagant, extravagant acts of love. He loved the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt and set them free. He loved them as they wandered in the desert and sent them food and water. When they had grown impervious to the needs of the poor or to injustice, he sent prophets to set them straight. And here, in John's most familiar verse, we're told he so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. But to be honest, there's always something about this verse that's troubled me. It's how it reads as somewhat or completely exclusive, that this is the only path. Now, I realize I may be on thin theological waters for many of you, but, but I struggle with a God that, through chancy timing and location, only seems to provide salvation to a lucky few, relatively speaking. What about the billions of people who live before Jesus? What about the billions around the world who follow a different faith? Like the line from my all-time favorite Broadway musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, goes, Why'd you choose such a strange time and such a strange nation? Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Why would a God who's the source of all creation, who persistently loves, redeems, saves, why would this God be so exclusive to a nation, a people, even a life form? Why wouldn't God's love be universal? Then it struck me. I'm emphasizing the wrong thing. You see, verse 16 opens with, For God so loved the world. The world. Not part of the world. Not Israel. It doesn't say, For God so loved Israel that he gave his only son, or For God so loved the ancient Near East that he gave his only son. No, it says, For God so loved the world. 
I firmly believe that God's salvation must be fully inclusive in some way, shape, or form that I don't pretend to understand. Now, last year, just before the shutdown, we had begun a series with our Wednesday youth group called Hard Questions, otherwise known as Stump the Clergy. We'd gather in the Ten Talks room and ask the 20 or so teenagers, and mind you, most of these were non-Episcopalians, and they would ask Peggy or me the kinds of, well, hard questions that teenagers naturally have about faith. Are the people of other faiths going to be saved? was an early question. And many of the youth were blown away by my statement of affirmation that yes. See, they had never heard of this, especially from a church leader. Then one of the youth leaders, Trevor Larkowski, made the following analogy, which is about as good as anything I've heard. He said, imagine we're all ascending a mountain. You're on one side and you see specific trees, rocks, trails and such. I'm on the other side of that mountain and I see a whole different set of trees and rocks and trails and whatnot. We're both seeing and climbing the same mountain, but our experiences are vastly different. Faith is like that. Different views, but the same objective. Climb the mountain. God's love affair with all creation underpins Scripture. For God so loved the world. But it doesn't mean there's not work to be done. We are climbing a mountain, after all. No, this isn't some kind of expanded form of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cheap grace that takes for granted God's favor, of God who merely blesses who we are and asks for nothing in return. No, we're asked to believe. In John's Gospel, belief is an action word, and it requires a lot of work. It requires a constant turning away from the forces of darkness, the powers of evil, and constantly turning back to the light. That light for us is demonstrated in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Believing. It is a recurring act of obedience to God's will. No one better than Jesus demonstrated this obedience throughout his life. He demonstrated obedience in avoiding the temptations in the desert in denying the calls for his kingship after the feeding of the 5,000, in his resistance to being obedient, but final submission in the Garden of Gethsemane, and finally, in his submission on the cross, thy will be done, even unto death. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Belief requires work. It is a constant turning to the light to do deeds that have been done in God, obedience to God's will. That's our view from the mountain. The climb may be difficult, and darkness may be surrounding us, may seem to be surrounding us, but the prize, eternal life, God's kingdom, is so much worth it. It is having an intimate connection with God and with Christ in this life as we turn to the light and in the one that follows. And that, on this fourth Sunday in Lent, this Laetari Sunday, this Rose Sunday, is worth rejoicing about. Amen.